Hello and welcome to Pocket Salon. I'm Jason Caffrey and you join me for this edition in a place where I myself have spent many hours indulging my curiosity, my daydreams and sometimes my obsessions. Foyle's Bookshop on Charing Cross Road remains a cherished hangout for book lovers of all stripes. And for Salon's summer essentials, the Foyle's Cafe plays host to writer, life coach and multidiscipline improviser John Paul Flintoff. With the conversational adventure, you don't have to move anywhere. You can be two people stuck in a cupboard, and the adventure is meeting each other. He'll be offering tips on what should come out of your mouth to spice up that flagging dinner conversation. What goes into your mouth and how you perceive it is the speciality of taste expert Robin Fegan. He'll be administering a taste test. For some people, they've been called super tasters, and then there's the tasters, and then there's the non-tasters which I'll be failing miserably. It tastes of paper. Well, in that case, um, you probably don't have very many of these certain taste buds. And when you finally press pause on the dinner party merry-go-round and jet off for your holiday, you'll want a juicy book to throw in your suitcase. So to guide us through this summer's essential reading, Salon recruited the Independent on Sunday's literary editor, Katie Guest. If you want to go on your holiday and you want to show to everyone around the pool that you're not reading Chicklet, there's an excellent novel I can recommend. It's by a novelist called Polly Courtney. She's the author who famously walked out on her publisher, HarperCollins. She had a great deal with HarperCollins. And at her book launch for her last book, she quit and she said, I've had enough of you putting my books in Chicklet covers. I don't write Chicklet. I don't want it represented as that. I'm going it alone. And she's sort of semi-self-published this new novel called Feral Youth, which is a, a book about a young girl who ends up involved in the riots that happened two summers ago. And it's a brilliant, brutal novel about this disenfranchised youth. And she's found her own cover designer, who she gets on with brilliantly. And the cover is fantastic. It's bright orange. It's got a purple figure splashed across the front. There's no pink. There's no women with high heels on. And there's no disembodied cartoon figures and it's absolutely great everyone will be intrigued to know what you're reading if you've got that with you is it going to work for people who normally gravitate towards chick lit (laughs) first of all i don't really agree that there's such a thing as chick lit it has a 15 year old girl as its lead character that's all chick lit does it writes about women and girls and uh it's a great story and it has a sense of humour, and the, the voice of this young girl is absolutely perfect. So if you like a strong story with strong characterisation and good dialogue, yeah, I think it's for you. Uh, another book that has been pretty much burning its way through the reading lists lately mm. is Gone Girl. That's right, yeah. Well, it's been a huge word-of-mouth sensation, and it was a fantastic literary thriller about this guy who realises that his wife has gone missing, and, and he gets drawn in and is sort of implicated in her missingness, and he becomes a suspect. If you loved that and you're still distraught that you finished it and you'll never again get to read Gone Girl for the first time, don't panic. There's a new novel coming out. It's coming out on the 1st of August, and it's called Precious Thing. It's by a writer called Colette. Macbeth and it's her first novel she was a BBC news correspondent on TV for about 10 years and she's just turned novelist and this novel is about two women who are school friends and their friendship sort of continues through their life and it becomes more and more intense and then slightly creepy and then one of them goes missing and if you enjoyed Gone Girl you'll really want to know what happens to these two women in this book. And if you haven't read Gone Girl and you're interested it was written by? Gillian Flynn. Now, um, I'm going to really put you on the spot. There must be something that you have that's come into the office that you've read yourself and that just sticks out and you think everyone should read. 
Yeah, still <laughs> the Hilary Mantel books for me are so gripping, so... This is Wolf Hall and... Bring Up the Bodies is the latest one, and there's going to be a third in that trilogy, and I cannot wait for that third book. It's, it's going to be so exciting. Katie Guest from The Independent on Sunday. Well, after you've chomped your way through Katie's reading list, you might feel well-equipped for some meaningful conversation. The deep, well-referenced variety peppered with catchy quotes. But is that really the way to a good conversation, or one that really adds to your life? Here's author and life coach... John Paul Flintoff. Well, my main measure of what a meaningful conversation is is one that we look back on and we remember something very significant that came out of it. And that, that could be something that changed dramatically for us, our own sense of ourself because of the way that we were able to describe ourselves or the way that someone else described us. Or our, or our statement in that conversation that we were going to do such and such a thing, which we'd never dared to say before. So what I think underlies a meaningful conversation is that it's an adventure. You're going out and saying something that's not been said before. And bear in mind, when we think about adventure, we often you know, if you think about children's stories. That's about going out there and killing a dragon or, or delivering the ring to the mountain in The Hobbit or whatever it is. With conversational adventure, you don't have to move anywhere. You can be two people stuck in a cupboard. And the adventure is meeting each other. The adventure is actually allowing the other person to come out and meet you and going out yourself and daring to be yourself. And, and what that means is taking off the mask allowing yourself to go into a place where you're not necessarily comfortable that you're getting everything right. And by doing that, modelling and, and making the other person feel safe so that they can come out and do something too. That sounds like quite a lot to unpack. I'm going to start with the idea of meeting somebody because I meet a lot of people, I enjoy talking to people, but I'm also pretty sure that I roll out some of my favourite anecdotes and stories when the opportunity comes up. Does that mean that I'm missing out somehow? No, because all of life isn't about having meaningful conversation. It, it's good to be able to rehearse anecdotes that people like. That, that's fine. Just like it's absolutely okay to go into a news agent and say, could I have this newspaper? And they say yes, and you say thank you, and then you leave. And that, that's part of life too. What I'm talking about is a very particular kind of conversation where you really feel like you, you hit something very important. And you had some kind of an engagement with someone that doesn't require you to know what their job is or whether they're married or they have children or any of those, those things. You just get to know something that's very, very much about... that. You can see it in their eyes. They come alive. That sounds like a, an interesting prospect, someone coming alive while you're chatting to them. How do you arrive at that point? Well, it's a really interesting dynamic dance. It's between you being there as a servant to the other person, absolutely listening wholeheartedly. Not listening in that way that we all do, where we're slightly thinking, well, if they think this is interesting, wait till I tell them my anecdote. Because that's not really listening, that's just being in your own head. If you can really, really devote yourself to them, then you allow them to come out. But I strongly believe that everyone has a very, very profound human need to be seen and to be heard. And if you don't get that, then you, you, you're very much diminished. So often... We project onto other people a sense that they're just like us. And that sounds like quite a nice thing, doesn't it? But it also goes wrong because you're imposing a judgment on someone else and that feels really frustrating and crippling for them. I will give you an example. My wife works with a man who constantly says to her things like, oh, that would be a really lovely job, but it's, it's not for the likes of us. So he's seeing her as just like him and she's going, fuck you, in, in her head. And, and she goes, hmm. And that's not, she's not a happy place because she's 
effectively, he's doing a small act of violence on her. Do you see what I mean? And there are. And I know people who work in this sort of marital breakup universe, and they say that a lot of kind of sleeping around is often to do with one of the people not feeling that they're getting enough good conversations. Simple as that. So what do you do? Well, part of what I'm going, what I'm doing, is showing people that they can be, they can be aware of how they interact, without being judgmental. I think one of the main reasons that neither of the two parties will come out and do this sort of very real encounter with each other is because they're so haunted by their own kind of critical voices saying, oh, I can't do that, or I can't say that, they'll think I'm a something or other. We all have those voices, and we all are haunted by them. We're all held back from being what we could be by those things. So if you're going to have a meaningful conversation, you clearly have to make it a fairly safe space where you're not looking judgmental. You're not looking um, like you're going to be cynical or laugh at someone when they say something that's a bit, you know, it's a bit bold of them to say that. We all have those voices and we all think we're slightly crazier than the next person because we don't hear their critical voices. We all think we're madder than anyone else. It also sounds like it's about listening, certainly allowing your conversation partner to speak, but perhaps showing some vulnerability yourself along the way. I think that's right. It would be impossible to say it's all about listening because then you're not being seen and you're not being heard and then you'll feel at the end, if you have lots of conversations like that, you'll feel deprived. And people also will be deprived of seeing the real you. So it's a dynamic thing. There's no, there's no one moment when the conversation is exactly right because it's a, it's a dance between two people. You work as a life coach and an improviser in the field of drama. Actually... All kinds of improvising. I improvise with stuff. I make things out of rubbish. So one of the reasons why I love improvising is because it teaches you that everything is valuable if you decide to find value in it. And that includes anyone you're talking to. It's very easy to to be misled by, you know, what does it say on someone's business card? Are they going to be interesting? But actually the so-called useless, not very interesting guy who's junior in the accounts department may be an expert on the thing you really love. If you go by what their job title is, then you're going to miss that. So if you decide to really absolutely try to find value in everything, the world looks like it's full of the most abundant possibility. John Paul Flintoff. Well, my next conversation is with Salon co-founder Helen Bagnell. Hello, Helen. Hello, Jason. (laughs) You're going to tell us what's coming up for Salon. I am. Um, We have, for Stand and Calling, Salon's presenting Circus Maximus which is a whole range of salon art, science and psychology around the theme of the circus. And that's the Stand and Calling Festival and, and beyond that? Um, after Stand and we're going to Festival Number 6 in Port Marion in Wales and up there we're doing two days of salons all around identity. But before that, salon goes to Latitude. Tell me about that. We're setting up in Latitude in a field, in a, hopefully in a tent, and we're looking at the, we're exploring the idea of what defines me, neuroscience or sex. And we will be looking at all angles of the brain and what defines us as people. Exciting to be going to Latitude. Is this the first time Salon has gone to a festival of that size? It's the first time we've been at somewhere that big. Yeah, we're scaling up for summer 2013. Great. So can you tell us about some of the speakers that are going to be there for you? We've got one of the world's best neuroscientists, Ian Robertson, and Ian has written a book called The Winner Effect, which is all about why we must win in order to survive. Um, On the Saturday morning, we're doing a breakfast, Breakfast with Salon London, and this is Playmate or Psychopath with Elaine Fox 
and Kevin Dutton, and we'll be really looking at uh, where our nat nature or nurture lies, whether we're part psychopath or psych part playmate. It doesn't matter, a bit of both, hopefully. Kevin Dutton is a, is a great speaker. I've seen him before, he's, he's really good fun. Uh, so tell us about uh, how we get tickets for this and find out more about how to get to these events. Everything that we're doing this summer will be on our website, which is www.salon-london.com. Um, and uh, we will also be, if you join our mailing list on the website, I'll be sending out details of all our Salon London summer activities. Sounds like you're not going to get much holiday at all, Helen, but thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you, Jason. You're wonderful. <laughs> She's my PR agent as well. Well, my final guest on this edition of Pocket Light is an expert in taste, not the do-you-prefer-motorhead or Mozart kind of taste. I'm talking more broccoli and bitter lemon. Robin Fegan is a specialist in how we perceive the flavours in our food and why some people have more taste than others. The food is dissolving on your tongue and being picked up by your taste buds. Um, and the thing that people don't always think about is the fact that uh, that's sending messages to your brain about it. But everything else is that is happening and sending messages to your brain, what you're seeing, what you're smelling, um, is all affecting uh, your perception of that and even your memories and mood and everything else that's going on in life. So what can you then tell the lay eater about the food that they're eating? It's quite tricky to um, tell, per se, what, what people will, what taste experience they will have because everyone is very, very varied and all across the world there's um, different people and it's, there's a lot of genetic factors involved as well, so your parents, how they tasted things. There's a few chemicals which make this very obvious, one we have with us today, which is PTC. It tastes very bitter to some people, and the taste is non-existent to others. So it's, it's like a litmus test for what kind of taste buds I have? Yeah, basically, it's again a genetic thing. It's really the number of taste buds you have affect it, and they have this thing that's been talked about a lot recently, which is super tasters, are you one or not? And we're going to do a bit of an experiment on that. For some people, they've um, been called super tasters. They'll be particularly sensitive. They're often fussy eaters because they will like fewer things and be able to pick out if something is bitter like this compound. And then there's the tasters, which most people are, um, especially in the Western world. And then there's the non-tasters who are even less able to taste, but will probably have a great time because they can enjoy almost all food. So we'd kind of like everyone to try some in the most hygienic way possible. Maybe take a little pinch and put it on your tongue. Um, this is quite an interesting chemical because... Trying it with a few people. Some people think that it's sweet. Some people think that it's salty. Some people think that it's bitter. And some people think that it's totally tasteless. So I don't know if anyone's kind of having... Most people disgusting? It's burning. Okay, that's unusual. Um, okay, come on, let's disgusting. bust out the litmus test and <laughs> so, see how it goes. Um, Right. That. So this is like a little strip of paper which yeah. somebody yeah, has prepared in a laboratory. Use. It just goes straight on the tongue. Yeah. Here goes. Here goes. Now, is it? Does it taste of paper, or does it taste disgusting, or does it taste a little bit bitter? It tastes of paper. Well, in that case, um, you probably don't have very many of these certain taste buds, as a lot of people don't in this country. Uh, myself and Rebecca, who's joining me today, find it quite bitter. I'm actually a little bit disappointed. It only yeah. tasted like a piece of paper. So <laughs> what does that 
say about how I enjoy food or how I perceive taste? It's basically, again, it, you know, it's nothing to, to panic about. Um, <laughs> it just means that, um, yeah, you have a genetic disability to taste. But again, does that mean you will... You'll have more adult tastes, probably a bit more sophisticated, and you'll be able to eat Brussels sprouts and drink bitter beer. Whereas if you're a super taster, you might only want child's vegetables. You spoke about it's not just the flavour that's on your tongue, it's all of these other what you see, what you smell and, and other factors. And people in different parts of the world who have different palates each eat different kinds of foods... How do those differences fit into this picture? Again, it's kind of a mixture between everything and culture and how they've, uh, how you're brought up and what your mother makes is usually pretty good and you think so in later life and that's nostalgic and things that you associate with good times like perhaps birthday cakes you think taste better than they are because it's a celebration. But uh, in Asia there's a lot more super tasters and people who are more sensitive have more taste buds. So I'm not sure how... That might have come from uh, an evolutionary background or it might be that that was useful to them uh, at some point in the past to be able to taste slightly more than us. We get traditional food from every country. I don't know if the people who started it were perhaps super tasters or non-tasters and that affected their recipes that were then passed down or what recipes had the sort of Darwin effect on them as well. This recipe is bad because it tastes a bit bitter. We won't have the Brussels sprouts. And obviously what grew in that country is going to be a big factor. Robin Fegan. Well, that's all for this edition of Pocket Salon. Thanks for listening. Do visit www.salon-london.co.uk for details of all of Salon's forthcoming events and how you can buy tickets. And you'll find us on Facebook and Twitter too. But for now, cheerio. Cheerio.